Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Welcome back to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel, here with Rabbi David Bashevkin, Director of Education for NCSY, among a number of other incredible positions he holds. He has a Twitter handle, at, is that how you do Twitter? At? D-Bash Ideas. D-Bash Ideas. D-B-A-S-H-I-D-A-S. Yes. Great. Yeah. You can check David out. He's always posting some cute, cutesy, interesting things over there. Also profound, but mostly cutesy. Yeah, no, I feel they're more cutesy than profound. Um, so David, before we get into the radical moderation portion of the podcast, tell me your best purchase under $50 in the last year. You're going to hate the answer because it's almost certainly a book. They're my uh, most... No, no books allowed. No books allowed. Yeah, no books allowed. Then it would be my book darts oh, that I geez. use. I have these book darts, which are these little metal clasps that allow you to kind of seamlessly uh, hold a place, kind of like stickies, but they, they fit in better. They're $6 for a, a canister of a I've about, seen them. They're sort yeah. of brass color. Yeah, exactly. They're very classy. Looking. Very classy. Yeah. So the book darts was an excellent purchase. Do you, on the that. Sabbath, use stickies or book darts to mark things? Book darts. And it, 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 but yeah. they don't have different colors, the book darts. So I, when I'm marking up books on the Sabbath, I like the stickies because I can do red for like, an article I want to write, green for something mm-hmm. to think about later, you know, different colors, but your book darts. All book darts all the time. Very interesting. All right. We should do that. We should send people to Amazon with my, you know, book referral, referral sure. code and we can make some money. Okay. So let's play a game. It's called Radical Moderation. I hope the sound engineer will put in some music. Yeah. Something like that. Okay, great. It'll be playing now. Dun, 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 something along this. Okay, here we go. I'm going to challenge you with two ideas. One, I want you to defend from the ultra-Orthodox position, yeshivish position. And the other idea, I want you to defend from the liberal perspective. The whole point of the podcast is, I want people to be able to put themselves in the shoes of somebody else. All right. The right-wing ultra-Orthodox position. Are you ready? I'm actually pretty nervous right now. Good. I did not didn't know about this part. <laughs> Why do ultra-Orthodox publications delete pictures of women, even political figures, or when only their faces can be seen? Why is that an appropriate choice? Is, there is a disclaimer that we don't necessarily agree with what we're defending. We're For just sure. articulating a defense. In, yes, very much so. I think that the blurring of women's faces from the perspective of those ultra-Orthodox magazines is comes from two places. It comes from an economic decision that the constituents who buy their magazine, uh, that is their preference, that they would prefer not. And like any, like any magazine that makes decisions based on the economic realities of the constituents they serve, and like the magazine Maxim or GQ, and you ask them why when women are on the cover – are they not wearing very many clothes? And they would say, we sell a lot more magazines when they are not there. And I think to a similar degree, it is a reflection of the buying power of the communities that they serve. And in the Hasidic world, they frown upon having public displays of women. Why do they frown upon that? I think 
This is the second point. On, on one level, it is a response to a overall extraordinarily warped relationship that the entire world has with female sexuality. And they have chosen to go to the other extreme where any depictions of women are seen as a infringement on their inwardness, which in that community is prized above all else. So it is first a reflection of the economic buying power of the constituents they are selling to. And second, I think that it is a reflection or a reaction to the otherwise very warped relationship with sexuality that exists throughout the world. So let me ask you two follow-up pushback questions to that. And I'm absolutely not Again, disclaimer, Radical Moderation Podcast game. The home version comes with like a six-page disclaimer sure, yeah. that you have to sign and there's a waiver and <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. insurance clauses. Sure. Okay, I'm not uh-huh. saying this, but if a magazine which tailored to, let's say, white supremacists decided to leave black people out of their magazine because the people who are purchasing the magazine don't really want to see anyone but themselves in the magazine— because that sells to their constituencies. Would you find that is, I understand it's not exactly the same thing, but would you find that reasonable? Could you tolerate that? I could not tolerate it. Would I find it reasonable? I wouldn't find it any less reasonable than being a white supremacist. I don't think that the analogy is comparable, but if you would tell me in a world of white supremacists that they have chosen to leave out people who the community, the racist community that they are selling to, um, they find it offensive, then I would understand they are trying. their goal is to sell magazines. I don't think that's the case in the Hasidic world because this is my true opinion. I, I reject the notion completely that the Hasidic world is um, is dismissive of women. I think that they have a very different notion about male and female relationships. That's often misunderstood, oftentimes mischaracterized, sometimes, like in any community, can be dysfunctional. But I don't think that the lack of women in the magazine is a reflection of the lack of women in the community, because if you go into a Hasidic community and you actually spend time in there like a proper anthropologist and not somebody who gets the news about a community from the headlines but really lives in the community, then you will see a lot of very high-powered, very important women who are frankly not advocating. I'll tell you, I know personally a lot of people who run this magazine or one of the magazines that leaves out pictures of women. I will tell you, their entire editorial board and all of the leaders of the magazine are women. Yeah. Are you talking about Mishpacha magazine or there's another magazine? Because I saw... I, I have I know the leaders of Mishpacha magazine. And one thing I can tell you is that they are not biased towards women. The leaders of the magazine. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not the, you know, secretaries. They are the editors. They are the, the executive C-suite professionals in the magazine. It, is, it would be ludicrous to suggest that the leaders of the magazine are, are biased towards women because they are all women. What would your response be to someone who pushes back and says, hey, I hear you. The world is hypersexualized. It's almost unhealthy. There's we, We've turned the sexuality between people. It's almost like either it has to be completely neutered or it's completely on full throttle turbo. There's It almost is like no healthy something in the middle. And so we see that you have this ultra-Orthodox community and they're trying to push back against that. But is it going so far as to uh, 
to like make women the other, to hype, to, to, to make it almost hypersexualized because even at the age of four, five, and six, they're excluding pictures of girls. I, I get a paper, my in-laws get a paper, they live in Queens, it's a more ultra-Orthodox paper, and they send it to us to read. And I enjoy reading it, sometimes for the actual articles, sometimes I get a kick out of what the advertisements are. But the one thing that I found sad was, is you have advertise, you know, you have uh, pictures of schools. So you have the boys and they're at their holiday parties and you have them showing off and the boys are there. And then they show the dioramas that the girls made. They don't actually show the seven-year-old girls. And I hear you. We've got a, the the hypersexualization is toxic. You see it. You see it manifesting itself in so many different ways. Do, why do you have to pull the pendulum back all the way? Speaking on behalf or in defense of the ultra orthodox community. So, just to be clear, am I sharing my opinion on this, or am I defending somewhere both. in between? Give me both. Give me both. The listeners want both, David. Got to give the people what they want. Um, my. My thought on this is that, A, I would disagree that it is the uh, the world's relationship with sexuality, you said, is almost unhealthy. I think we've crossed that threshold, and you could take out the word almost. It, it is unhealthy. We live in a time where, where, by and large, we have an unhealthy relationship with sexuality. You, you don't, you know, you can open up newspapers. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a scary time in, in terms of that. In terms of the magazines, however... I'm trying to phrase this as artfully. We're listening with bated breath. If you'll permit me, I think, and, and I hope I'm not dancing around the question, I think that a lot of this conversation has been misdirected, and I want to reorient the conversation. I think too many people in our community and in other communities spend too much of their time criticizing those magazines who choose to depict depict women in ways they find inappropriate or offensive. And to all those people who are screaming at the top of their lungs and who feel that these magazines in power are doing it wrong, my response to all of them would be, show us how to do it. Do it better. And I am proud to be affiliated with a magazine that comes out of the OU called Jewish Action, which very much does show pictures of women. And I would say that magazine does it right. And if you are a man or woman who feels that media in the Jewish world or non-Jewish world are depicting women in inappropriate ways, then if that is a cause that is important to you, then you should be supporting and finding platforms and venues where women are portrayed appropriately. Spend less energy criticizing the establishment or the platforms that are doing it in the way that you find offensive and find spend more energy building platforms and areas where you can do this the right way. There, I, By the way, I really appreciate that answer. I think too often we spend so much time criticizing and yelling at the other rather than just saying, okay, uh, in my space, how can I improve? Where can I make it better? Um, it's an interesting thought. I really appreciate that. All right, let's flip, let's flip the tables here a little bit. Defend or, you know, advocate. Why do, at least seemingly, left-wing groups tend to capitulate towards political correctness? Meaning they ally themselves with groups that reject Torah values. I've had on the podcast before some really good guests. Um, one of them, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who's a dear friend of mine, a colleague, uh, a current incoming shall have a parent. And we disagree, uh, I would say, almost 
very strongly on lots of issues. And, and one of the t- things I say to her all the time is, I, I don't know why there has to be this intersectionality between progressive groups and anti-religious groups, anti-Orthodox groups. It, it seems like it's almost, they go hand in hand. You can't be one without the other. Why? Why, why are those people, why is it reasonable for them to be so angry towards the Orthodox community? So those are really two different questions. One question was dealing with why progressive or non-Orthodox Jewish communities align themselves with many organizations who are anti-religion. The other is why they are so angry at the Orthodox community. I think that both of these are reflections of two poles that exist in the political sphere. They exist in the religious sphere they existed they are essential poles in humanity on one end you have people who prize the value of choice and free will and creating a life as you determine and as you see fit and they look for forms of government and forms of religious expression that highlight areas where people can be competitive. There is a lot more emphasis on a meritocracy. There's a lot more emphasis on a less authoritarian government or, um, you know, safety nets or any of those things. You can call them Republicans. You can call them in some ways Orthodox Jews. You can call them, you know, it's one form of government. I think on the other end of the spectrum are people who in this dichotomy, which began as a religious dichotomy between the divine omnipotence of God, of God being all-knowing and man having free will. And there were philosophers, both Jewish and non-Jewish for centuries, who tried to square away this contradiction. So on the other side- contradiction that God knows the future. If God can know everything, how can man have free will? So on one side of the spectrum, there are people who the notion of free will and man being completely free resonates a lot more. And I think that that plays a role in their political affiliations and their religious affiliations. And on the other side of the spectrum, I think that there are people who feel that there is a measure of predetermination in the world and people are put in situations that are simply outside of their control. And we need to create a society where people who are faced with problems and issues that are simply not of their doing and not of their making, that we create a society where those people have a safety net and platform to thrive as well. And you're saying those people feel that orthodoxy does not respond to that positively or is not helping to... I think that they think that orthodoxy emphasizes a lot of the distinctions or a lot of the... the kind of this meritocracy or elitism or emphasizes the ideals that in mass are very hard to reach. And instead they would rather, instead of emphasizing the communal ceiling in which the Orthodox community is reaching towards and very often fails at reaching, but nonetheless as a value is reaching towards, they would spend rather spend much more time talking about the floor, so to speak, that binds all of humanity mm-hmm. and not emphasize the distinctions between different communities and different um, different types of people and the types of communities that tries to de-emphasize 
synthesize anything that discriminates, not in a racist way, but just discriminates kind of people from different economic backgrounds, that's going to be a more democratic leaning society, which I think more progressive people are gravitate towards. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen, at least I'm struggling with finding the moment in time when the social justice movement separated from the religious movement. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I don't know if you've read letters from Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King and how deeply religious they are and how he called upon the religious leaders of the time. I know there were some that he was not happy with and some who supported him, but it felt like there was an ideal ideological alignment between the social justice movement and the religious movement. And I often wonder was the, when did we part and was that over uh, abortion issues, uh, uh, homosexuality and, and gender uh, issues, because it seems like religion now is on one side of the debate often and social justice and progressives on the other side of the debate, when at the end of the day, both groups want to take a world that is often very painful and try to support people through that pain. When did it get so, why can't we agree to disagree on some of those fundamental issues and then work hand in hand on the other issues of helping people? I think that, and maybe this isn't a defense, but the one value that's crept into our discourse that we need to resist with all of our strength is cynicism. And I think that cynicism is the barrier to engaging religiosity, aspirations, and spirituality in a healthy way. And I think that unfortunately cynicism has crept in on both sides, but it is the cynicism of people in the left wing who I think wield it very imprecisely in the way that they criticize political figures, the way they criticize religious figures, that has created an an unnecessary distance between those two communities. All right, let's end off with the following last question. <clears throat> Tell me something you've learned from somebody who is radically different than you. Something that someone you engage with, maybe it's at the new school or somewhere else in your life, who is so different and opposed to so much of what you stand for, but they taught you a truth. Um... I don't know if I could find an example of somebody who we were, we were opposed as adversaries. You know, I'm not really a particularly adversarial person. I could talk to people of what I've learned from people who are radically different from me. I know in the new school, my, my closest friend who helped me on everything, uh, somebody named Emmy from, uh, from Minnesota. She was an Egyptian Muslim and she opened up my eyes to the way kind of the inner workings of the Arabic world and how, you know, Israel is seen by different communities and reminded me that a lot of the discourse in which the Jewish or right-wing community talks about the Arab community as a monolith is extraordinarily mistaken. There is a lot of nuance and different ideas within that community, both on, you know, one another, different fragments within the Arabic world on understanding of Israel. And again, it was, it was, none of this was a shock to me, but it really was a firsthand reminder from both sides that people are not, should not be reduced to their ethnicity, to their religious affiliation, their political affiliation. Ultimately, the full sense of their authenticity emerges from their individual self. Do you find, sorry to ask one more follow-up question, you're at a Shabbat table 
um, and someone makes a comment about the Arab world, do you do you say something about it? Do you stop the conversation? Do you gently say, hey, totally hear that, but where are you? Because I, I have this experience all the time. I, I had an opportunity over the summer, last summer, to go see, to interact with Palestinians face-to-face. -face. And I came back and you know, I saw some different things, nothing unexpected. I saw people who hate Israel. I saw people who dislike Israel. I saw people who love Israel. I saw people who are born into poverty, abject poverty and have nothing. And so they don't have no choice but to hate because they see hate in their lives. And I came back. And so some Shabbat table conversations, if I'm more comfortable with people, I'll stop them. You know, I might have a donor who's talking to me who says something and it's, you know, a little bit more difficult to stop them and say, hey, I'm not sure I agree with you. How do you now that you have this truth that you've kind of come to terms with uh, from your partner at uh, New School? Do you do you share that with others? It's a fabulous question. I was raised in a home and maybe we could start with uh, again, I was raised in a home with that mother who taught me how to be friends with prayer and friends with text, we were not allowed to use the word goy in the house, which is a term to describe non-Jews that is found in, in many texts. My mother felt that there was a pejorative tone to the word, and we were not allowed to use that term. Uh, my mother raised us in a way that we were not allowed to talk negatively in any broad strokes about any race or ethnicity. At the same time, my Shabbos table or my home is not the, I, I'm not the uh, sheriff of the uh, identity police. And sometimes people will say things that I certainly would not say. If anybody said something that was objectly racist or, you know, really nasty, I absolutely would, would tell them something. But if somebody says something or phrases something inartfully, my response always has, and like I mentioned regarding the magazines, is let me show you how to do it better. And mm -hmm. let me model the type of speaking about people different from myself in a way that hopefully you would want to bring it back to your own home. And I would respond to those people in the way that I would want to be responded to if I tripped over my own words, because everybody does in one way or the other. And I think the best way to remind people to change is not by yelling at them or, or calling them out, but, but modeling for them the right way to speak. David, this has been fascinating. I hope you'll join me on another podcast at a later date. I hope uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this, you'll give us five stars so that more people get to listen to Radical Moderation Podcast. If you have any feedback, good, bad, ugly, constructive, not so constructive, I'd love to hear from you. A.Siegel, S-E-G-A-L at shalhevet.org, S-H-L-H-E-V-E-T.org. David's Twitter handle is at Dbash Ideas. Dbash Ideas on Twitter. And uh, it was really a pleasure being here today. Thank you so much. You got it. <laughs>